Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 21st of December, as we record. It's the final show of 2023. There are very few people here in the FT office today, but the Investors Chronicle team are a noble exception. And there are a few others this week who haven't downed tools, and we're going to be discussing them as well. We will start by looking at the potential merger of two REITs, London Metric and LXI, who confirmed on Monday they were in discussions over a potential combination. We'll also be looking at specialist engineer Goodwin, which is one of those hardy few that puts out interim results just days before Christmas. And in between that, we are going to be discussing ESG funds, looking at the year they've had and the year they might have in 2024. Joining me to discuss all of this in the studio are Mitchell Labiak. Hello, Dan. Gemma Slingo. Hi, Dan. And Val Cipriani. Hi, Dan. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this uh, this final show, as I say, the final Companies in Markets show. I should say we do have a another Lee and the IC podcast coming out next week, so look out for that. But for today, we are going to begin with those REITs. Mitch, uh, I think I said Monday at the top. It might actually have been Tuesday or Wednesday when... The uh, uh, RNS came out, but either way, London Metric and LXI, they are considering a combination. Can you set the scene a little bit, talk about you know, what they do right now, what this type might offer for them, what they think it might offer? Yeah, well, setting the scene. So you've got um, two FTSE 250 REITs, which, you know, both sort of a respectable size, which if they merge will become the fourth largest real estate investment trust in the UK and would be big enough to qualify for the FTSE 100. So, yeah, there, there's a bit of scene setting for you. In terms of what they do, um, London Metric uh, is an interesting REIT with regards to its history. It used to own retail parks, but now it's it's mostly a warehouse landlord headed by um, Andrew Jones, and they've been sort of quite acquisitive in their own right. Um, and so has LXI. It's recently been through a merger of secure income REIT. And their whole sort of USP, as it were, is is long leases to sort of a, a variety of assets. But what they all have in common is is those long leases. So they own they also own Alton Towers. That's kind of what they're most famous for. But they own um, uh, a lot of hotels. They own uh, all kinds of assets. But the thing that brings them all together is um, is long leases. So yeah, so that's 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 what we're looking at here. Yeah, it comes at a sort of interesting time, and it has a, a quite a lot of. Um, interesting implications which we can which we can get into yeah as you say it's almost a merger of well you know it's a secondary merger in some ways given both of them have been through a similar kind of thing in recent months secure income with with lxi as you say and uh london metric with what was it ct property ct property that was last year i think wasn't it so no that was that was this year but i'll forgive you for for not remembering their name because they weren't they weren't massive but then that was kind of um a, a bit of sort of uh, London Metrics pitch is that they they believe there are a lot of Andrew Jones has gone on record saying he believes there are a lot of sort of smaller REITs out there or I don't think CT Property Trust is a REIT it was just a trust but mm. even still a lot of sort of smaller listed property equities out there that because they're trading at a discount are sort of ripe for acquisition either by itself or by or by the market um, so so yeah so the fact that he's trying to buy LXI REIT seems to sort of fit in with that philosophy as it were CT property isn't a very memorable name either. I blame that. No, London Metric is a much better yeah, yeah. name. Yeah, you might as well be uh, part of the London Metric family. But this uh, this question of size is quite pertinent as well. I mean, mergers, we've seen merger activity in the general investment trust space, and that is partly to do with size as well as discounts. 
but in, in those cases the the you know the size you need to be while increasing is much smaller you know a few hundred million here i mean there have been some comments about these two reits you know that they are both subscale at 2 billion obviously combining to make 4 billion doesn't make them that much bigger but the idea is that will be a bit more give them a bit more oomph obviously and make them you know look more sustainable so i suppose that begs the question of what is a sustainable size for a reit nowadays and why why is this figure you know relatively high in the first place yeah it's an interesting one i i saw that comment too and i i think it's i think it comes i think it's kind of an american comment for for lack of a better phrase you know us investors often perceive the uk reit spaces as subscale like you know some of these reits are subscale because the reits over there are massive um the exact size needed is is hard to say but the FTSE 100 is is a good benchmark, and that's where these REITs will be. Well, they'll be big enough to qualify for the FTSE 100. Mm. Um, and there's only three REITs in that sort of hallowed space at the moment. You've got Seagrow, Landsec, and Unite. And what you get at that size is something, arguably, you can you can offer an economic moat against competitors by, by your scale. Pat Dorsey says that REITs can't have economic moats in his, in his book, but... I, I disagree with that point and I think Seagrow and Unite are good examples of that that's what sort of you know when you get to that size when you get to sort of maybe four billion plus you know you can be at a size that it's it's hard even for private equity to compete so that's yeah Seagrow and Unite are sort of two examples of that you know that they are the largest warehouse owner and the largest student accommodation owner respectively in the UK and I suppose to get back to you know what this deal means for London Metric and, and the scale, that's perhaps a place that that London Metric can get to. It could be the largest. Um, I suppose you'd say that they'd be the largest long income asset holders and the largest, the largest owner of uh, of assets that have long leases on them. Mm. That's kind of where you could where you could put them with this. So yeah, is that so? I suppose that would be the the USP because the actual type of assets they have they're quite warehouse focused now, but LXI is a bit of a bit of a mix of stuff. So this would be giving their portfolio then a bit more of a mix of things. So it's kind of the scale play rather than a giving them more specialization in a certain area if this were to go through. Yeah, if it's it's an interesting one because you're right. It's it it's so there's there's two ways they could market themselves after this after this merger. I mean, you wonder whether the, the name London Metric might still apply, whether they might want to change the name as well. They could pitch themselves as say, look, you know, we are the largest um long lease owning sort of real estate investment trust out there i think if you know just from sort of half from memory but you know london metric has a unexpired average lease term of about 12 years and for lxi it's 25 maybe more so combined you'd imagine they'd have a, a wall of about 15 17 years which is much higher than most other REITs. so that's kind of what um what what they could advertise themselves as they could also advertise themselves this this new re advertise itself as the sort of it would become bigger than british land as a result of this merger so it could advertise itself as the second biggest generalist re so you've got landsec being the first biggest generalist is in it owns a, it doesn't specialize in any one assets except mm. maybe arguably london offices it's you know it's more diversified than that that's kind of what um london metric if this merger goes ahead, could pitch itself as as a sort of like you can expose yourself to the the whole British property sector by buying this uh, by buying this REIT. I suppose the question might be the other question: Will this go ahead? You know, obviously we that's hard to say at this stage. All we know is they're in talks, but 
the drivers of these kind of mergers, you know, you've got the discounts on the one hand, the fact that, you know, these market caps we've spoken about are lower than the value of the assets. You've got, you know, the need to scale up. Equally, though, they aren't done deals. You know, there was, was it Picton and UK Commercial Property were going to merge recently and that failed. So, you know, merger talks aren't a guarantee of succeeding. Quite often as well, I suppose in these situations, you have management teams, you know, with with very different ideas maybe of what they want to get out of it because clearly that's what London Metric wants to do. LXI, maybe they uh, have different ideas. This isn't, you know, a rescue deal at this stage really, is it? So it'd be interesting to see if they can work out the shape of the board, for example, and things like that in future. Yeah, exactly. I mean, is um, Peter Bill, who's a, who's a property author and a contact of mine, he uh, mentioned on Twitter that the way he put it is, you know, who gets to play with the toys at the end of it, right? So... Mm. Who will actually end up running this company? Who will end up with, with the assets at the end of it? I suspect, by the way the merger is being presented, that would be Andrew Jones, although we don't know. So that that can have an impact on whether people want to go through with it or not. I mean, you know, Picton, it was notable. You know, Picton was the one go with the UKCM merger, which you talked about, which ultimately didn't go through. Picton was the one that was keen on it. It was the one trying to do essentially a reverse takeover. And it was UKCM that backed out of it because their largest shareholder said they didn't like the terms of the deal. That provides a lesson, which is that you've got to sort of, as, as I'm sure our readers will, will sympathise with, you've got to bring the shareholders on board. You know, why is this ultimately, why is this good for them? Not just why is this good for Andrew Jones and his and his control of London Metric, but why is it good for the for the shareholders? And I think that's the, the case um, uh, London Metric and LXI will have to make. Well, that is obviously still a live situation, only just got going. So we'll keep tabs on that into 2024. And if you are interested in more REIT coverage, next week's issue, there's no issue of the IC this week due to our bumper Christmas special last week. But next week's cover story will be on our pick of the UK REITs and some global REITs in there as well. So do look out for that. Now, though, we are going to turn to ESG funds and ESG fund performance. This is another uh, well, this is a preview of uh, a piece coming up in said issue at the end of the year. But Val, uh, you've written that this week. It's been another, you know, fairly tough year for ESG funds after you know, 2022, when instinctively perhaps the the reason for that difficulty is more obvious when you think of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and spiking energy prices and the kind of the the stampede back towards oil and gas. For that reason, it was you know quite obvious then that sustainable funds would suffer maybe in comparison. This year, there's some other factors at play as well. Can we sort of talk through the reasons for that relative underperformance this year of most of these kind of strategies by ESG? For those who don't know, I should say, you know, it's uh, sustainable investments. So ESG stands for environmental social governments, funds. To be honest, part of the problem is that defining these things is quite difficult. So uh, it is a bit of a uh, take your pick, but we can get into that as well. Yeah, we'll we'll discuss that later. But um, in terms of performance, I think, yeah, the main thing is that it wasn't quite as bad as 2022 in absolute terms. Uh, but if you look at it in relative terms, so comparing ESG funds with the sort of like more conventional funds, well, then they did not hold up too well, although obviously it, it depends on the funds. I mean, a few things at play here. Uh, one of them was definitely that it was quite hard to beat the market for active funds in general. And I think, I mean, we've, we've 
spoken and written about this a few times, but basically the kind of like market rally has been quite, quite narrow in general, so very focused on, on the big tech stocks in the US. And so those stocks are very big, so taking an overweight position in a fund in one of those stocks um, is obviously a massive bet, which for understandable reasons not many uh, active managers will take uh, and so when the when the market is so narrow that it becomes very hard for them to to kind of like overperform so this is kind of like a general trend for all active funds and obviously a lot of the green funds or the SG funds they they do tend to be active so that that is part of the problem I think there is maybe um, a bit of a good thing in here in the sense that a few years back, a lot of the conversation about ESG was it, you know, is it just a proxy for a tech fund, basically, which is a lot of like um, big exposure to tech stocks. Uh, and it's kind of not quite like that anymore, or at least not for all funds. There are quite a few of them that obviously do quite specific things. But that obviously has meant that this year maybe their performance wasn't as good. Some of the things at play here are that, well, first of all, um, there's still, you know, a lot of like exposure to growth stocks um, in those funds and an environment of high interest rates. We, we all know it's not, it's not great for growth stocks, aside from those big ones uh, we were talking about. And then maybe the other thing is even though the sort of like run towards uh, oil and gas was more in 2022 than, than this year, renewable energy has not quite recovered or performed as well this, this year either for a bunch of different reasons, including, again, sort of the the issue with growth stocks, costs that are rising and uh, various operational problems that are partly company specific as well. So maybe a few different things going on at the same time. Mm. Yeah, it does seem to be that combination of, yeah, they're, they're in the growth stocks, but not the, you know, the magnificent seven growth stocks that have uh, certainly for the first 10 months of the year really drove markets. They, you know, Certainly with the investment trust, which is a different side of things, you know, the rising uh, discount rates, which come from higher interest rates, continue to hurt them this year. And, yeah, those operational issues you mentioned, too. I suppose Orsted is the biggest example of this, the the wind producer, you know, European, um, Danish uh, company, you know, dealing with higher costs. And we've seen some wind farm auctions fail as well. But in general... It's quite interesting as well, the point you make about, if, I think you're right, a few years ago, they were ESG funds were seen as kind of tech proxies. <laughs> Unfortunately, people probably still wish they were this year, because, but they're not because they haven't performed that well. And that's probably because they are doing something more specialised nowadays. And they are, you know, there are more actual transitional energy companies and renewable energy companies and things like that, because a lot of the time, obviously, these funds do boil, boil down to stocks which are helping with the climate transition or helping with the energy transition rather. And they are more focused on those rather than having to just buy technology stocks because they can't buy oil and gas nowadays. Which kind of funds are, have been the best performers though this year in this space? Have there been those? I mean, there must be some that have stood out for good reasons. Yeah, I mean, I think predominantly, you know, some of the sort of like trackers or more in a way, vanilla ESG funds, so the ones that track the market a bit more closely, and then they might have some exclusions on top. So, you know, those funds, again, would have quite, like, it's quite a lot of exposure to tech stocks and, in general, to the kind of, like, uh, broader market, uh, which has been doing fairly okay, and so they, they're kind of, like, closer closer to that to that side of things. Some funds, I mean, the other tough thing for ESG funds this year is partly in reaction to last year's performances that some of the money has started to come out of them as well. They have seen outflows. They've been dealing with uh, investor redemptions too. That said, there are some funds that have proven pretty popular with private investors still this year. 
uh, Guinness Sustainable Energy being being one. Yeah, I mean, quite surprisingly, actually, but it made the top ten list of most purchased funds on on Best Invest. And if you want, it's quite it's quite a comparatively niche fund in a way because it invests uh, in kind of like various areas of sustainable energy sources. So it's kind of like quite a specific exposure. And then the other kind of like relatively popular um, group of funds is some investment trusts in the renewable energy space. So um, Green Coat UK Wind always um, kind of comes up in the in the most popular uh, lists for for platforms. Um, and again, par- part of that is to do with its very healthy dividend, which tracks inflation, even when inflation was very high, like, like this year. Uh, so still quite attractive for investors, I think. And you'd hope that next year might bring some uh, better better times for these funds for, for two reasons, maybe certainly in the, the renewable energy space, you know, some of those headwinds do appear to be fading. Uh, you know, some of the costs are starting to come down now. The, the failed auctions, we alluded to the government uh, auctions uh, early this year, they have the, in the UK, they have responded now with uh, higher subsidies effectively to try and attract more bids. So that's encouraging from the point of view of the people receiving those subsidies. But also, as we've seen in the past couple of months, you know, the, the prospect of rate cuts as well is obviously for a, a rate slash growth sensitive sector. They have risen pretty strongly in the last couple of months, as you'd expect. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, obviously, we don't know when, when that's happening, but um, it's generally been uh, quite a good time for uh, renewable infrastructure trusts as well because of that of that expectation that we might have reached both you know, the base rate increases but also the peak of discount rates, which is in the end what drives the, the valuations for, for those trusts. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's still a lot of uncertainty for next year, but there is some hope. Uh, final question on this. We can't uh, avoid for too long the question of definitions, which I alluded to at the top, because... While you always need to do your research and look what's actually in these funds, it can be very hard on the surface to work out what actually they invest in and what they do. The FCA has come out with some new labels to try and help investors do that. Can you say a little bit about what they're doing? Yeah, basically. So we, we've been waiting for this for a bit. Um, and it's a new labeling system that uh, is supposed to kind of tell you what um, the ESG or sustainable fund is actually trying to achieve. Because obviously there are many different ways to go about an ethical or a green fund. It has a lot to do to, you know, the way you approach this and what you believe in. So it's kind of like hard to, to make it objective. And so, I mean, that there have been accusations in the past that the fund management industry was exploiting this a little bit uh, to kind of like sell funds that were not necessarily as sustainable as investors who were buying them might expect. And so there will now be four different labels to kind of try and figure out what what each ESG fund does. And I mean, maybe without going too much into detail of each label, but, you know, there's like the more sort of just like generally environmentally or socially sustainable ones. There's the impact ones, which are aimed at achieving some kind of environmental impact. And then maybe the most interesting in a way um, category is the one that's called sustainability improvers, uh, which I think really gives you an idea of why the uh, classification was necessary because sustainability improvers funds are about investing in assets that may not be sustainable now, but are aiming to improve their sustainability in the future. And so it's that kind of conundrum, you know, about companies that uh, are not very good 
with their carbon emissions right now, but that also we will likely need in the future. And so they really need to kind of like cut their emission or anyway, improving their, their credentials. And so quite that, that's quite, I think, quite a few fund managers that believe that, you know, this is in a way the way forward, try and pressure companies to, to improve on that side. But that equally, that means that if you are a private investor and you invest in one of those funds, you are going to get an exposure to sectors that are not necessarily obviously green. Uh, so, you can, so you kind of need to be aware of, of that and it needs to be maybe quite quite clear. So yeah, this is what this is what basically the, the labels are trying to do, just trying to make it clear uh, that there are different types of ESG and green funds uh, and help you pick the one that sort of matches what, what you want to do with that exposure. So we will see how, how it works out, whether, whether it works well, but it is kind of promising compared to the system we have now, I think. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. It makes sense to delineate those kinds of companies because that is often where the, the gray area stems from and that should yeah you know hopefully serve more investors serve them better we will see how those labels go i'm sure there'll be plenty of other uh, confusions to come down the line but uh you know baby steps perhaps our final section of the show though and indeed of the year on the companies and markets show is about goodwin uh gemma you have covered the company a couple of times this year including the results the interim results out yesterday they are a mechanical refractory engineer but can we say a little bit more about, before we talk about the results, about the company itself and, and its heritage? Because it has been around a long time as well, even though it's still pretty small. That's a good idea, I think, because it's one of those really interesting companies that very few people have actually heard of. So, as you say, it's basically an engineering firm that's been around for 140 years and has two main areas of expertise. So it's got the mechanical engineering side, which basically involves designing and making metal components for various different industries. And then it's got the refractory engineering side, which I did have to do some research into this, but basically involves making mineral-based products that can endure extremely high temperatures. So one of the products it makes um, is an extinguisher of lithium battery fires. And I did chat to a fund manager about the company a few months ago, and he, he basically said that we have this really rich industrial heritage in the UK, and Goodwin is a prime example of that, but we don't often shout about those companies. So I thought it was a good one to, to pick up for the readers, really. Yeah, this is uh, we covered this in your small cap spotlight in the summer uh, and again, obviously, with the results today. And in between, the shares have continued to do uh, very well. So the company is clearly doing something uh, right. How did the results look this week? Pretty good, actually. So there were its half year results. Um, revenue was up 9% and its operating profit was up 28%. Um, and the main driver of that seemed to be that it just had lots of activity from clients so as I said that lithium battery fire extinguisher product was selling really well um, there'd been more activity in China apparently um, where it sells products to sort of help with jewellery making so it seemed that clients were were wanting the product more than they did before um, there were a few comments about the mechanical engineering section so there's been quite a lot of talk about big projects coming through and management was talking about its frustration that some of those decisions were happening quite slowly. But on the whole, really positive, I think. Mm. I suppose that's probably a good summary of the global economic situation or a microcosm of it, given you know that demand has stayed resilient this year and has been stronger than many people expected, as you, as you say there, in a number of areas. At the same time, there's still uncertainty about the future, maybe about those big ticket items 
or at least people are delaying those decisions. What about the company's own revenue lines, though? We spoke about China and the lithium battery fire extinguisher, which is a very specific uh, product, uh, probably you know, a good energy transition product there, just to try and avoid those uh, disastrous situations. But the company itself was originally quite focused on uh, oil and gas and reliant on the oil and gas industry, and it has moved away from that somewhat over recent years. So how's the business split look nowadays? So it's much more diversified than it was in the sort of 2010s, I suppose. So it used to make loads of money from making these massive valves for power stations. And then the oil price crashed in 2014 and loads of the projects just completely dried up. So now it's basically massively expanded its range of customers. So it serves the likes of defence, aerospace, mining, jewellery, a whole load of different sectors. And that seems to have made revenue growth a lot more steady. So just to give you a bit of context, the oil sector represented 50% of sales in 2014, and now it represents just 17% of total revenue. And the sort of customer concentration has also massively reduced. So I think investors are probably feeling more comfortable about Goodwin as a whole and less braced for big shocks in demand. Mm. In the summer, you know, there were some comments to the effect that nonetheless, despite that, you know, relatively small oil and gas uh, or direct exposure now, it, it might need a uptick in sentiment, you know, in terms of commodities to outperform. But from what we've seen of the latest figures and, you know, indeed, as I say, the share price movement in between, that might no longer be the case. So this might be bearing out its diversification strategy and it's not as cyclical as it was, albeit if there is a global recession, then it's going to suffer probably. That's true. And actually, just to refer back to the fund manager I mentioned at the start, he seemed to think that actually the demand from the traditional oil and gas customers is returning. So as well as the diversification, you have this this boost from, I don't know, the need for more oil and gas, which doesn't, as Val was saying, doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. So that market is sort of recovering. But then over the longer term, you have these these different customers that can keep keep growth going. So one example seemed to be the radar industry. So Goodwin makes this very specialised type of antennae that apparently is going to be huge in the future. And they're still that's one of those projects they're still waiting to materialise. But they definitely seem to have a lot of irons in the fire. No pun intended. And what about the uh, the ownership of the company as well? Because it's a very old business, you know, it's UK heritage and it is still, you know, family owned. How, to what extent is that the case? You know, what proportion of the shares do they own and how does that affect things like liquidity? You know, this is a, a smaller company and that can be an issue sometimes. Yeah, so it is definitely something to bear in mind. So the Goodwin family owns more than half of the shares and I think it's the sixth generation of Goodwins that's now currently leading the company. Um, and that does make liquidity a bit of an issue. So the shares aren't, uh, I don't know, quite thinly traded. So that's something to bear in mind. Um, it also impacts no predictions, really, because the company is covered by very, very few analysts. So there isn't a huge amount of information out there that investors can can draw on. So those are the two main things, I think. And I guess the sort of decision making about the company is very much in the hands of the family. But then at the same time, there's lots of research that suggests family run firms are sometimes outperform because they have this long term thinking. Um, and I think that's definitely something you see in Goodwin's results. You know, they, they're quite upfront about the fact that we've invested lots in a particular plant or a particular factory. It'll be a while till we start seeing the returns, but they have faith in the project. And I think you don't always see that at, at publicly, I don't know, listed companies, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, there is a, 
uh, smooth with the with the rough of the lack of liquidity here, isn't there? Because as you say, that that long term time horizon can often be quite beneficial to to investors as well as to the company itself. What about the uh, the valuation though? How does that look now? Uh, you know, results earnings are increasing. So is the share price, though. You know, how does it look on that and other metrics, perhaps? Again, it is very difficult to tell because there is so little analyst coverage. So it's hard to know what the forecasts are going forwards. But the price to earnings ratio for the last 12 months was 26.5, which does seem relatively steep. But then it does seem to have momentum behind it at the moment. And shares over a very long period of time have been doing extremely well. And the earnings seem to be sort of gathering momentum as well. So I think it does look like an attractive quality UK company that has really proved itself, particularly in the last few months when you've had all the energy price volatility, sort of commodity price volatility. It's managed to retain its margins and it just shows what a quality company it must be for its clients because they've been willing to to keep paying the prices and retaining it as a as a supplier. Yeah, as you say, it is one of those companies. It does fly under the radar, but that can be, you know, of course, a benefit as well as a hindrance for investors if other people haven't noticed it. And, and certainly if investors can do their own research and look look at that. A final thought, perhaps, on on Goodwin. I mean, do we see its prospects next year as being, I'll kind of recapitulate the earlier comment, but as being reliant on, you know, the economy continuing to tick along? Or are there signs that actually it's diversified geographically, regionally, uh, enough to withstand more difficulties if they arise? I think it is exposed to economic conditions, obviously, but it did say in its half-year results that they were expecting the next six months to see similarly elevated levels of activity. Um, so that sounds promising, and it does have sort of various various things about to come into production. So it has this new polymer product that it wants to make, um, and it's the plant's about to be, come into production in the summer, I think. Um, it has its submersible slurry pump business, which is very glamorous. It's got a new sort of factory in India that's meant to massively increase manufacturing capacity. So the sense you get is that it's really it's investing well and it's sort of gearing up for growth. But the one thing that investors might be a bit worried about is that we haven't seen the ultimate returns on those projects yet. And if the economic conditions do sort of falter, it could get a little bit trickier. Mm. Yeah, it's always worth keeping an eye on those capex expenditures at at an individual level to monitor them, but also how they're accounted for as well and, you know, to see how they progress and whether they actually pay off in the end. But for now, things looking good there. So on that relatively positive note, we bring the show and the year of companies and market shows to an end. Thank you very much to Gemma, to Val, to Mitch and to our producer, Maddie Apthorpe, as ever. And thank you to you for listening throughout the year. We'll be back early next month with another Companies and Market Show. Goodbye, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.